local market. So Tesla will face competition from the local Chinese uh, new energy vehicles. I mean, it does, it does seem like that Tesla, sorry to interrupt you, it does seem like that Tesla didn't handle the complaints very well, that's for sure. Their first statement uh, wasn't really very sympathetic to the protester. But then at the same time, how much is this really about the safety of Teslas? Or is Tesla just getting caught now in the, in the middle of the deteriorating US-China relationship and it's become a victim of that? Yeah, I, I, of course, the Tesla is kicking up the, 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 you know, the market share in China market. So that, uh, uh, I think from the government's concern side, it's, uh, it's continued to increase in that trend. Uh, they will suppress the local uh, new energy vehicle market from the, Ch- the Chinese uh, car makers. And also, uh, like I said, data issue is always uh, something that's still uh, related to this market. So the government trying to balance that. Uh, between the Tesla, the foreign uh, entrants, and the local mar- car makers, so 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 this uh, uh, this uh, kind of a battle will still continue in various aspects. Uh, okay. But in the in the long run, the new energy vehicle market is still very promising in China. Okay. Well, sorry, sadly we've run out of time, Yanan, but uh, we'll try and catch up with you again very soon. That's Yanan Wu, who is chairman of Zhenrong Bao. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets this morning around Asia, in Australia, the SX200 has risen 0.1%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan down about a third of a percent in the first hour, half hour, sorry, of trading. Uh, The Cosby moving in the other direction, up a third of a percent. And futures markets indicating a gain for the Hang Seng Index of about a third of a percent in, uh, in just under an hour's time. Thank you for listening this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Back chat is coming up next after the news with Hugh Chiverton and Mike Rouse. You're listening. The weather forecast for today, mainly cloudy with a few showers. Temperatures will linger around 24 degrees during the day. Moderate to fresh easterly winds, occasionally strong offshore. And a few showers in the next couple of days. It's 23 degrees right now. 75% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. The United States has become the latest country to offer emergency medical aid to India, where healthcare services have been overwhelmed by a massive surge in cases of COVID-19. The supplies include urgently needed oxygen and ventilators, as well as raw materials to boost India's domestic production of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Dr. Anthony Fauci is the chief medical advisor to President Biden. There's discussions about really ramping up what we can do on the ground, oxygen supplies, drugs, tests, PPE, as well as taking a look in the intermediate and long run about how we can get vaccines to these individuals. India has recorded more than 2,700 deaths in the past 24 hours, the highest since the start of the pandemic. The Iraqi health minister has been suspended after a devastating fire at a Baghdad hospital treating coronavirus patients that killed at least 82 people. More than 100 were injured. It was reportedly caused by the explosion of an oxygen cylinder. Hala Saraf, the executive director of Iraqi Health Access, a non-governmental organization, said hospital staff faced a dilemma. The problem is that the COVID patients who are in bed are the severe cases who are fully dependent on the O2 pipe, central pipe. And once the fire started, somebody needed to put the O2 central pipes off, which means basically cutting the oxygen from those who need it most. And that 
led to the worst. There is no other way to avoid suspensions of the system. Otherwise, the whole building would have exploded. The head of the Organization for Eastern Caribbean States says the world's developed countries failed to appreciate the impact of natural disasters on small island communities. Didicus Jules was speaking just weeks after a volcanic eruption on the island of St. Vincent engulfed agricultural land in ash and devastated the economy. Here's the BBC's Will Grant. Dr. Didicus Jules said he was proud of the solidarity shown by countries across the Caribbean towards St. Vincent. The regional response to the island's water shortage had been particularly rapid, he said, and the Organisation of Eastern Caribbean States had had to pivot its support to the government of St. Vincent to provide the most comfortable housing to the affected families. However, the Director-General of the OECS also compared the catastrophe to Hurricane Maria in late 2017, when at least 15 people died on the island of Dominica. The wider world just didn't have an appreciation of the scale of natural disasters on smaller islands, said Dr Jules. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton, your co-host this Monday morning, Mike Rouse. Mike, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Today we're talking about combating climate change and the latest on COVID-19 developments in India. At an Earth Day summit last week, US President Joe Biden said that the world's largest economy will cut emissions blamed for climate change by 50 to 52 percent by 2030, compared with 2005 levels. And President Xi Jinping has reiterated his pledge that China by far the world's largest emitter, would reduce, well, I'm sorry, would reach carbon neutrality by 2060. Quote, China has committed to move from carbon peak to carbon neutrality in a much shorter time span than what might take many developed countries, and that requires extraordinarily hard efforts from China, she said. He also said China would strictly control coal-powered plants. Well, what roles can Beijing and Washington play in combating the climate crisis? Will international action actually materialise? After 9.15, we're going to be discussing, as I say, the latest COVID-19 developments uh, in India. If you've got any questions or comments on anything we're talking about, then uh, please email backchat at rthk.hk or please comment on our Facebook page. That's Backchat and RTHK Radio 3. Or best of all, join the conversation and give us a call on 233-88266. The number is 233 233- Eight eight two six six. Just a couple of comments to uh, kick us off. Uh, this is related to our discussion uh, last week. Um, uh, this is from uh, you. Uh, you, who says uh, Andrew Leung suggests that young Hong Kongers don't understand China. He has persuaded himself that the poverty alleviation in China justifies their political suppression and totalitarianism. Taiwan alleviated poverty in its population, as did Korea and Japan, is richer on a per capita than China and is a flourishing democracy. In my experience, most young Hong Kong people are intelligent, balanced and fully aware of what China is like. They have relatives there they read the news, they travel there. Many, not all, are simply not inspired by and in fact repelled by what they see. I hope he feels comfortable when he spouts his nonsense and looks at himself in the mirror later. He sounds eloquent and not unintelligent and I can only reach the view that he's consciously repeating mainland untruths and realises he's a propagandist. That's from you. Uh, Matthew says on today's topic, what Beijing and Chairman Xi say and do are often entirely different and even inversely related things. 
colleagues. Those who are concerned about the environment will be well advised to look at the tangible results that are delivered before getting excited by the chairman's words. That's from Matthew. Once again, our email is backchat at rthk.hk. Joining us now, we have Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics, Director of the International Graduate Programme in Politics at the East China Normal University, and in our central studio, uh, John Sayer, who's Director of Carbon Care Asia. Maybe we start with Mr. Sayer. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much indeed for joining us. Okay, what, what, what did you make of the, uh, uh, the summit last week, and what do you think were the most important points coming out of it? Well, I mean, it was fairly generally expected that uh, Joe Biden would uh, set some serious targets to the United States because East Asian countries have and Europe has, and he's just coming back into the fold. So no big surprises. Um, and if they are to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050, which he's also talked about, of course they have to make serious cuts by 2030. They need to get on the right trajectory. Uh, do you, and do you, think, do you feel that he's, they're back on the right road? Yes, I do. I think if they can cut 50% uh, against 2005 figures by 2030, that's the curve is going down and it's, uh, it's heading for 2050 where they really must achieve uh, net zero emissions. Given, say, good morning. Um, good morning. Given, given that many members of Congress are still in uh, denial mode on global uh, climate change, let me call it, um, especially one half of the Senate, uh, What's the object, what are the odds of getting proper legislation to achieve these targets? I mean, Joe Biden ran on the platform of, of setting serious uh, climate change action into, in motion in the US, and he won the election, and he won the uh, Senate and Congress, was won by the Democrats, who also broadly support uh, serious, uh, far-reaching climate action. But, but uh, legislation requires sometimes 60... 60 members of the Senate, not, not 51. So we will see. I mean, he's a consummate politician, and I, from what I've seen in US politics, you have to do a lot of negotiating and trade-offs. Right. I mean, how about the prospect of a carbon tax? And, uh, yeah, there are various market-based mechanisms for getting carbon emissions down. Carbon tax uh, is one. Uh, in this region, Singapore has that. Or there's an emissions trading scheme, and uh, China is rolling out something on emissions trading, where you cap the emissions and you trade the right to emit. So uh, one or the other, I think, will be quite essential if, uh, right. if America is to achieve its Because targets. the EU is talking about a border adjustment, isn't it? That if you haven't done the right thing about carbon at your end, you can't ship your goods into Europe uh, and without a price increase to compensate for, for the extra carbon that went into producing them. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of a third uh, market-based uh, uh, intervention to try and... Uh, that, in a way, is to try and bring everyone along with you and, and make sure you don't make the sweeping changes necessary when other people get away with, uh, get away with higher emissions and then import their goods into your area. There's a whole lot of buts, of course, to, to all of this. Uh, I mean, one of them is that, you know, what do, what do we expect to happen when, uh, when the pandemic uh, declines? Uh, isn't it likely that there'll just kind of be a surge, that there'll be a surge in industry and a surge in buying and, and so on, and we might be worse off than we were before? Um, there are various analyses. People have... Uh, <coughs> 
Obviously, it's been demonstrated the importance of respecting nature and animals. It's been uh, the people have quite enjoyed uh, less traffic on the streets. Um, and they've realized the, the, what values are uh, related to uh, time with friends and family rather than endless, mindless consumption. And uh, we will see. I mean, I think it will vary in different places and amongst different groups. But many people are talking about a green recovery. Indeed, Hong Kong has signed up through C40 Cities, which is a city-based initiative for a green recovery from COVID. So um, investment in infrastructure and green infrastructure as part of a stimulus package. Do you, do you think that the, uh, the, the pandemic, the global pandemic, has encouraged people to think of kind of worldwide problems? Or do you think it's just kind of encouraged nationalism and people, you know, hoarding away their own and fighting over their own uh, vaccines and so on? I think it, it has increased an understanding that we're all in this together and that uh, we need to respect uh, nature and the environment around us and that uh, you can't isolate problems in only one country. And uh, a lot of people, I think, have had time to reassess their values, what's important in life, okay. the quality of life. Professor Mahoney, good morning to you. Hi, thanks, Rich and Dee, for joining us. What, what, what did you make of the uh, the summit last week and what came out of it, in particular what, uh, what China had to uh, say? Well, I think it's, I think it's clearly uh, a very positive development that the United States has reversed course from the previous administration. And I think it was uh, you know, a very good sign that we see um, uh, John Kerry going to Shanghai to you know, start laying the groundwork for talking about cooperation and China joining the summit. Uh, these are all very um, um, positive developments, and, and I think they should be welcomed. Uh, my concerns uh, run in, in a couple of directions. I have concerns about the China side and concerns about the U.S. side. Um, uh, in, in, in the case of the, of the U.S. side, um, you know, I think that um, we, we hear uh, Biden talk about cooperation uh, with China on climate change, but we hear compete and contain on everything else. Uh, and even even in the case of, of, you know, maybe moving towards a green economy, there's an element of competition, competition over uh, innovation and, and new IPR and all these things that are going to be needed. So I, 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 I remain unconvinced that this, that this you know, three-handed approach is really going to provide uh, sort of the critical overlapping, intersecting um, support needed to really cooperate on climate change when, when the clock is really ticking, right? We really need to hit certain goals by 2030. Was there one the corner, was, of, sorry, one corner of that was uh, solar panels, wasn't it? Um, whether there's a greater role for solar and whether there's going to be free exchange of the technology between the economies? Well, I think I think there's two sides of it, right? One of it is uh, existing tech, and then the the idea that's including solar panels, but also secondarily the idea that we still need to innovate quite a bit. And you know, the the other part of this conversation, which is really hard to track, is you know, China is of course still going to see increasing energy demand um, and uh, increasing emissions up to 2030. But one of the things that I'm having a hard time determining, you know, we, we, we talk about 5G, for example, and um, and how 5G is going to be, uh, you know, a, a China phenomenon, a U.S. phenomenon. 
but how it also radically increases energy usage. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm worried because, I, you know, you don't see all of this data on the same page. It's in multiple sources. Um, are, we, are we following a technology curve that's increasing our use of tech, or, excuse me, increasing our use of energy, and are we adequately keeping pace or closing the gap between increasing energy demands and our capacity to produce renewable energy? And are we getting ready to see a major jump in energy, not just because of the potential surge in a recovery from COVID, but, but also because of uh, the 5G revolution? All right. And in, in, in this context, Bitcoin mining has been identified as very energy intensive, hasn't it? That's right, yeah. Using a lot of electricity to, uh, for the computer part. John, sir, any yeah. thoughts on that? Is the technology going to save us or doom us? A combination of things. Um, certainly we need to continue investment and creating jobs and research in, in green technologies. We've got to both convert to renewable energy in the way we make energy, uh, particularly electricity, and then we've got to use it more efficiently anyway in our manufacturing and in our buildings and so on. The combination of those two things. We've already come a long way. I mean, some renewable energies are now grid parity, meaning cost for cost, they, they compete well with uh, fossil fuels, which is why subsidies for renewables have been Renew, uh, removed in some countries. So, you know, it's not a trade-off between uh, the economy and green technology. It's a trade-off between the technology and the economy and vested interests. And it's the vested interests that are now the blockage more than uh, technological development. There are a lot of solutions out there. It really depends on where you put your money. Vested interest being what? Fossil fuel industry? Fossil fuel industry and the, the bits of the car industry that are not converting to electric vehicles and, uh, and a certain inertia in, in all technological systems and manufacturing. And, and a lot of people employed in, still in coal extraction. Um, well, employment in coal has been dropping since about 1900. Yes, uh, but it st still controls so some of the seats in Congress in, in the United States. And decreasingly so, I think, in terms of uh, influence. Uh, we've got, you know, the, the main reduction of jobs in coal has come from mechanization. And right. the second is, of course, because they've converted away from coal to other fossil fuels, oil and gas, and now renewables. So it's been on a downward trajectory for a long time. But uh, sort of bringing up uh, coal communities as the sole reason for not... Uh, combating climate change, I think, is, is, is disingenuous. And I think right. uh, you will see less uh, political vested interest in that area as time goes on. I hope you're right. What's the situation in China, Professor Mahoney? Because, you know, the use of coal, especially dirty coal, has been a big problem, hasn't it, in terms of emissions and in terms, of course, of, of air pollution and so on. We heard uh, Xi Jinping saying that he would strictly control coal-powered uh, plants. Uh, is that uh, feasible? Hello, Professor Mahoney? You're, you're asking me? Yes. Yes, please, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, one of the things that we see uh, time and time again, uh, and, and I don't offer this as an article of faith, but what we see time and time again is that Beijing rarely really offers this type of public, international, concrete um, uh, promise that they don't believe they can back that up because sooner or later they know that they're going to be evaluating on it. Uh, so my sense is they, they must believe that they can they can do it. Um, 
and that um, and that the calculus, if the calculus of, of politics and economic uh, economics and and other global uh, issues, if all of that changes and they have to back off that goal, then, then they'll have an, then an out. But you know, my my concern, and it's both. You, know, you were talking earlier about Congress and the Senate, uh, you know, half the Republicans maybe being opposed to this. The, the, the double, I think, sort of the double problem right now is I don't think we're really talking about changing consumption uh, patterns in the United States. It's really about how can we maintain our current consumption and even increase it, but do it in green ways. And at the same time, in China, of course, with the dual circulation economy, right, one of the key objectives is continue to increase export-driven manufacturing, but at the same time, um, uh, try to increase uh, Chinese consumers' uh, demand, their, their consumption levels. So I'm, I'm, and I'm really worried that this, that we're not really thinking about how consumption uh, is driving the equation. Uh, so we're going to, you know, theoretically increase consumption in China, but not really change consumption practices in the United States. I don't know that uh, um, that that's going to really help matters. I agree that that uh, that uh, the technology exists that we can use a lot of renewable energy but, I, but I, my, my bigger concern is is how do we how do we address the culture of uh, consumption yeah don't say it yeah i think i mean covid 19 has demonstrated our capacity to change our behavior dramatically when there's a need but of course that was a fast onset problem we could see the 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 critical issues and the hospitals getting full. The problem with climate change is it's a longer onset issue and we need to change our behavior over the over several decades starting now. Right. And that's much harder for people to understand, but there are drivers for that. There are market mechanisms, there are consumer products. All the major car companies are rapidly developing electric cars, for example. And the UK government has announced no more fossil fuel vehicles, no petrol, no diesel vehicles for sale after 2030. Nine years' time. Now, that's a tremendous restructuring and change in, in, in the availability of products and in manufacturing. And, and many countries are going for this. As we, as we look ahead to Glasgow uh, later this year, uh, the, is it something COP26 or something? That's right. Yeah. Okay. There are two issues that sort of at the back of my mind, and I'm not sure how the international community is grappling with them. One is a population adjustment. That is, if you've got a country of a million people or a hundred million people or a billion people, what, what allowances are people prepared to make for how much uh, gunge is being spewed out? And, and secondly, there's the histor historical aspect. If you've been polluting the atmosphere for... 200 years or something uh, and now you say oh well it's reaching crisis levels everyone's got to cut back um, the guy who's only just started industrialization is going to say well hang on a minute most of the stuff that's already up there that's doing us harm was put there by you and you've raised your standard of living we've only just started yeah luckily the the UN agree with you <laughs> um, and they have a uh, concept within the Paris Climate Agreement called Common but Differentiated Responsibilities. 
We have a common responsibility to act on climate change, but that is differentiated for exactly the two things you said. One is um, you know, how wealthy the population is right now and, and the material well-being and, and also the infrastructure and the health and the education they enjoy, and then the countries that are still developing. Second factor, how long have you been releasing greenhouse gases? And we're at a quite an interesting time. I mean, right now, year by year, China now emits twice as much uh, uh, greenhouse gases as the United States, but historically the US has, has emitted more or less twice as much as China. And so what the common but differentiated responsibilities suggest is that the developing and emerging economies peak a little bit later uh, before hitting a common target of reducing emissions to net zero. China has even said they'll do that 10 years later than the, the widely accepted target of 2050. So that's the concept, allowing a little more leeway, but a common goal, which is net zero emissions. Professor Mahoney? Right, but, but one, one concern here, of course, is that during the summit, Biden said that the U.S. is only responsible for 15% of the global emissions. And, you know, data published, and, and you, you referenced this uh, last year, but this is based on 2018 data, is that, you know, the top three polluters in terms of emissions in the world, China, uh, U.S. and India, with China roughly twice the U.S., U.S. roughly twice India, whereas China and India each account for 18% of the world's population, and the U.S. is only 4%. So, in fact, U.S. emissions, emissions per capita are quite high. And I don't think this is really uh, openly acknowledged uh, uh, in Washington um, with, with the obvious implications. But aside from this, you know, you have to look at manufacturing and we see uh, that the U.S. has effectively offshored a lot of its manufacturing in places in the developing world. Uh, you know, you look at China, uh, they have, uh, they, they, they contribute something like 28, almost 29 percent to global manufacturing. Um, and a lot of the, the majority of those products are being pushed into uh, the world economy um, as a result, you know, U.S., in part we have to say U.S., uh, finance and U.S. consumption is driving emissions in China. So the, the overall, I think, you know, responsibility of the U.S. is not always sort of candidly expressed and acknowledged, even though the U.N. has this mechanism for trying to differentiate in, in some sort of historical fairness. Yeah, John said. Do you want to yeah, no, I would agree. Absolutely, that's two more arguments in favour of uh, of uh, common but differentiated responsibility. Per capita emissions in America are about double those of China, and China makes all you know huge amounts of manufacturing goods that are not for their own use that are exported. But the way the UN measures emissions, it's production based. So China makes the stuff; other countries use it, but the emissions are charged to China. What about the geopolitics of this? Because this, you know, uh, this seems to be the only kind of a common ground or an area where the United States, where Beijing and Washington uh, have agreed to kind of uh, work uh, together. Uh, Professor Mahoney, is that is that significant? Does that does that all go well or, or or not? Do you think it'll it's prone to getting bogged down in the same kind of uh, uh, dispute as other areas? Well, I, I tried to talk about this a few minutes ago, and, and it's a conversation that, that we had on this show with David Zweig some time ago, where I said I, I wasn't quite convinced that Biden's, I called it the three-handed Frankenstein, where we're going to compete, uh, cooperate, and contain, that, I, that that wouldn't 
provide sort of a viable foreign policy. And David said that, you know, he thought he could see how that would work. But uh, not to throw an entirely separate issue in here, I think what we're seeing right now is that it's not working with Russia um, in terms of uh, the, the escalation and the de-escalation that we're seeing on the Ukrainian border. And I think with, with China, we have much more cautious um, and, and wait-and-see approaches in Beijing. But I'm not quite sure yet how China is going to play along. So, for example, if you're prodding me and pressuring me in the South China Sea or Taiwan, um, is this going to undercut uh, Beijing's willingness to cooperate on uh, some climate change goals? Or, or um, if you're really trying to compete with me in climate change, um, is this going to just devolve, uh, devolve into some sort of nationalistic uh, game plan? So um, I, I'm, I'm not very confident yet, but I would like to be optimistic. When you say compete on climate change, what do you mean? Compete to have the biggest cuts or, or what? Well, to be honest with you, you know, Biden made this, this commitment and the, the White House was asked afterwards, well, how are we going to do this? Uh, how are we going to actually get there? And the White House response was, well, we see multiple paths, but then that was it. There were no details. So we really can't assess whether or not this was sort of a posturing uh, by Biden or whether it represents um, a, a uh, sincere um, um, offer that is based on uh, numbers and, and scenarios that they've actually run that are also politically and economically viable. Um, so, you know, I think this is one of the questions that you also see in, in uh, uh, that people have to be thinking in Beijing is, you know, Biden made a very big splash, a very positive splash, and um, uh, this puts pressure on Beijing to respond in some sort of way. So, yes, there is competition in this respect, but then there's also competition in terms of um, uh, trade policy, um, uh, but we are likely to see a new national industrial policy coming out of the United States. Okay. And how We've got a break because we've got to uh, have the uh, news at 9 o'clock. We will continue the discussion in a few minutes' time. We're also going to be talking about the situation in India and uh, COVID. The weather, mainly cloudy with a few showers. Temperatures up to about 24 degrees today. 23 degrees now. Humidity is at 76%. The most comfortable housing to the affected families. However, the Director General of the OECS also compared the catastrophe to Hurricane Maria in late 2017, when at least 15 people died on the island of Dominica. The wider world just didn't have an appreciation of the scale of natural disasters on smaller islands, said Dr Jules. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. Back chat this Monday morning with Mike Rouse and me, Hugh Chibbert. And later we're going to be talking uh, to a clinical assistant professor from uh, Hong Kong U about the situation of uh, COVID in uh, India. We've heard about uh, international efforts to uh, help the uh, health system there, which is uh, struggling, uh, to say the least. As I say, we'll catch up on that later. If you've got any questions or comments, email backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call. Our number is 233-88266 or go to our Facebook page. That's Backchat and RTHK Radio 3. We're talking on our first topic this morning, combating climate change, to uh, John Sayer, who's the Director of Carbon Care Asia, and Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics, Director of the International Graduate Programme in Politics at East China 
at normal university. Our email once again, backchat at rthk dot hk. Uh, John Say, I think you wanted, I think you wanted to respond. We were just kind of talking, touching on the geopolitics of this, and President Mahoney was was suggesting, I guess, that uh, Biden was uh, 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 there was some grandstanding involved in these uh, uh, these ambitious targets, uh, which uh, did get the headlines uh, set by the uh, by the United States. What, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, in terms of in terms of politics, clearly um, neither of those presidents will be in place in 2050. So they're making projections forward uh, and saying we're going to start action now. But it's probably worth remembering that the Paris Climate Agreement, the, the climate talks before that in Copenhagen failed. There was no agreement. And the reason we got the Paris Climate Agreement is, is uh, President Xi and President Obama got together before the talks and agreed uh, to cooperate in achieving a deal. And when those two countries said there needs to be a deal, all else followed. And we got the Paris Climate Accord. And so there was cooperation at that point uh, to get a deal through China at the, COP, at the COP talks, the climate talks each year, uh, which I've been lucky enough to attend uh, for several times in the last five years. Uh, China has a pavilion and it always hosts a South-South dialogue. So on climate change, it sort of sees itself as a leader of the South, or the leader of the developing world. But it's very... Um, and clearly they, they certainly call on the developed countries uh, to do more and to provide finance to the least developed countries on this. But that cooperation and that dual role of the China and the US on climate change has worked well in the past. And really, let's hope for the, the sake of the planet, sake right. of humanity, that we continue, that cooperation continues. I think we all share your <laughs> wishes in that era. I'm just a little bit worried about US credibility even if Trump himself is not a candidate in 2024, people who think like him will be, will be running. And he took America out of the Paris Accord. Could a future Republican president do the same thing? The and in the meanwhile, how much credibility does uh, America have going into the next one? Yeah, that's the pessimistic outlook. Um, the optimistic one is that younger voters are coming in and everything shows that younger people, including in the US, are more concerned about climate change, feel more betrayed about the lack of action and will support uh, more action on climate change. Well, I'm with you in the good hope. And by the business. way, yes. that, that includes younger Republicans. Uh, younger Republicans are more sensitive to climate change than the older ones. So we may be seeing a generational shift um, in the Republican Party as well. Mm. All right, some some uh, from listeners, uh, and we've got a uh, Republican, uh, Mike, who says, uh, "I'd like to ask Michael, uh, that's you, I guess, yeah, okay. uh, what his is his definition of climate denier." Uh, 2,500 years ago we were in an ice age and now we are not. Yeah, thank goodness the planet is warming up. It's not a discussion of temperature. It really is a discussion of how or if humans can do anything about it. Uh, when one volcano eruption puts more CO2 in the atmosphere than man ever has. What is this what you call an inconvenient fact? Discuss that. The previous administration reduced emissions without a global agreement that cost U.S. taxpayer billions. I love it when the world is happy that the United States is forking out trillions for climate change rhetoric. They don't have to pay the bill. Great guys. That's from uh, Mike. Don't say it. You want to say it? It would be a shame to use up our few remaining minutes to try and uh, 
convince uh, climate deniers that this is not a thing. Uh, the majority, you know, 97%, 93%, over 95% of scientists feel it's a thing. And the nearly 200 countries that uh, the political leaders around the world that signed the Paris Climate Agreement believe it's a thing. And I think you can see from the, the US election that the majority of Americans believe it's important and we should act on it. We have visible evidence from the fires in California, the floods in Florida, and uh, fi of course fires around the rest of the world. And so uh, it, I don't think we really need to question the science when uh, people, climate deniers, uh, call into a show like this. Sure. Um, Dan on Facebook uh, <laughs> says, in 2003, scientist and author Michael Crichton wrote a powerful rebuttal of the pseudoscience that underpins the global warming and climate change debate. The title, Aliens Cause Global Warming, is worth a read by everyone who cares about this important topic. That comes from Dan. Uh, scientist? Michael Crichton a scientist? Or just a writer? Uh, um, Frank says, uh, something missing in the debate. You may want to bring it up in today's discussion. And this speaks directly to SAR policies, such as building on country parks. Many of the root causes of climate change also increase the risk of pandemics. Deforestation, which occurs mostly for agricultural purposes, is the largest cause of habitat loss worldwide. Loss of habitat forces animals to migrate and potentially contact other animals or people and share germs. Uh, that comes... Uh, from uh, Frank, uh, who also says, I hear Sayer cannot make the connection between pandemics and climate change. He still speaks of rapid and slow onset. Hmm, that comes uh, from Frank. John Sayer, do you want to comment? <clears throat> yeah, I don't quite get the point. I mean, we were talking about humans' capacity to change their behaviour. And I do think that it's easier to change your behaviour when uh, a crisis hits immediately, whether that be an earthquake or a flood or a... Um, you know, or COVID or a pandemic. And, but uh, climate change has been creeping up on us. I'm not saying that it's not hurting a lot of people right now. It is with the floods we see around the world, with the fires, people losing their homes, um, and uh, higher intensity typhoons. But uh, for, for many of us, it's something more distant. And, and the, you know, the saying is that, uh, can I care about the next decade when I, I'm worried about the next meal? And that's why we need political leadership on this. And that's why we welcome governments around the world, the majority of, of countries now and the majority responsible for the great majority of emissions are saying we need a target. We are going to get to net zero in 2050 or 2060. That's really important. We need that kind of leadership. Well, before we uh, leave this topic, can I just ask about the Belt and Road uh, Initiative and now... America and Japan coming out saying they're going to also assist the same countries, some sort of degree of competition there, but there's an awful lot of coal-fired power plants uh, in the existing BRI, um, and if America and Japan are going to be funding in the same areas, uh, aren't, we, aren't we actually going to boost emissions? Let's hope it's green competition. I mean, the, the China has shifted. Yes, <clears throat> there's a disturbing amount of coal-fired uh, electricity generation that China is financing on Belt and Road. But uh, wind, solar and hydropower has now made up more than half uh, of, of the Belt and Road investment. And let's hope that trajectory increases. It, it really has to. And China has to stop financing um, uh, coal-fired power and fossil fuel power generation, as does America and as does U.S. banks. Professor Mahoney? 
Yeah, I think it's. I think one of the things that's interesting to remember is that you know AIIB in in uh, uh, Beijing, which funds a lot of the BRI projects, was was founded in part because the ADB uh, was being controlled by Japan, the United States, and was refusing to invest in certain development schemes. And so I think it's a little a little uh, ironic that we may see uh, Japan, the United States. Uh, now uh, competing against this other mechanism, in effect, that was created because they, the U.S. and Japan weren't really interested in those type of investments, but now they feel like they need to in order to put themselves back in a competitive position in these emerging economies. Um, so, yes, I think it's I think it is a serious concern. And it would be nice to have some competition in the sense of somebody invents a better solar panel, but the other guys... Uh, chips are needed to make it work better, and and will they come together? Or are they still going to be banning exports to each other of the best technology? Yeah, I think on on green technology, there are not as so much uh, the the worries about security issues. And we know that most products in the world, most electronics, are are made from components all over the world. So you know, here is the green opportunity. Here is the green recovery opportunity to develop these technologies. Electrical infrastructure, smart grids, public transport, energy-efficient buildings, and renewable energy. That's where the jobs of the future lie, and uh, that's where the investment lies. And I think we all know how the world economy works. You know, cooperation and trade work better than, uh, than uh, trade wars in, in, in creating goods for everybody. And we need these low-carbon goods uh, as part of this economic recovery, but more important to stop uh, the incredible catastrophic effects of climate change on our food supplies, on our, uh, on our weather and on our water supplies. All right, some more comments. Uh, Jay says, America will shift its dirty manufacturing to emerging, emerging economies or third world countries. They don't effluent on their own doorstep. They do it somewhere else. That's from uh, Jay. Um, and... Uh, Doug says, isn't the elephant in the room the rapidly increasing world population? Uh, Anthony says, emissions of air conditioners is a main source of global warming and climate change. Yet any one of you in the newsroom and guests would turn off their air conditioner in Hong Kong, question mark, or they just preach uh, what they don't practice. That's uh, from Anthony. Jay also says, don't forget, seasons are out of sync and the world axis is not the same. That's, uh, that's from uh, Jay. Um, uh, can I ask Professor Mahoney, does this, is there much kind of debate, uh, public discussion about, about climate change and efforts to combat climate change? Do you see that uh, in, the, in the public sphere in China? I, I think it is something that, that, is very, uh, that has captivated a lot of people. And, you know, it, we really saw this become um, the, whole, the whole question of pollution and green development really began to accelerate uh, shortly after Xi Jinping took office. And I remember, you know, I don't think we've ever seen this really confirmed officially in a, in a, in a broadcast, but there was uh, anecdotally this, uh, you, you were having all this uh, discontent and unrest in Beijing and other cities because of pollution. And uh, supposedly he says in frustration, why is this now, um, you know, my biggest problem? Why, why do I have to focus on this? But clearly it, it had become something that a lot of people in China um, and, and it, it is generational, but, but including um, um, middle age and, and older people, 
had had reached a, a tipping point, and they, they really had begun to realize that in order to live better lives, uh, that they didn't want to sacrifice it for, for air pollution and, and other concerns. So this the, the, the party adjusted to that reality. We saw a major shift in terms of how uh, party officials are uh, uh, evaluated in terms of the number of dirty days that they have. Uh, we see uh, a considerable greening uh, effect happening in Beijing, um, something that was already underway in uh, Shanghai. Um, and, and I don't know how much time we have, but one thing that we haven't mentioned, but, but is a, a very important perception in this conversation, is the, the very strong possibility now that the Greens might win in Germany in September, the trend that the statistics are holding that way. And that can really transform a lot of things, not only in terms of, you know, what's going to happen in Europe. But I, if I recall correctly, Europe is the biggest destination for Chinese exports. Um, and so, you know, if we see that green government come into effect in Germany, what's going to be the bigger knock-on effects in, in uh, foreign policy and how is that going to uh, affect um the whole, the whole um, situation. Okay, well, Professor Mahoney, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Joseph Gregory Mahoney there, Professor of Politics, Director of the International Graduate Programme in Politics at the East China Normal University. And thanks to John Sayer, Director of Carbon Care Asia. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, one more comment from uh, Jay Angry, who says, Texas banned solar panels. Um, thanks for that. Back chat at rthk.hk, uh, our email address, if you want to comment. Wanted to turn finally today to uh, news about the uh, COVID situation um, in India. We've been hearing on the news this morning about uh, international efforts to uh, help the country as uh, the, 19, uh, the COVID-19 crisis uh, grew with uh, infections and deaths hitting uh, record highs. The healthcare system has struggled to cope with the huge surge, uh, in particular problems uh, supplying uh, medicine and uh, oxygen. Uh, joining us uh, now is uh, Siddharth Sridhar, a clinical assistant professor from the uh, University of Hong Kong's Department of Microbiology. We've often talked to him about the situation uh, in Hong Kong. We're turning him now for some news from, from uh, India. Uh, professor Sridhar, good morning to you. Morning. Thanks so much indeed for joining us. Uh, what have you been hearing? What do you know about the the, the latest with the situation in in uh, in uh, India and Delhi in particular? I think has been particularly badly hit. Well, the uh, the the news from the ground is that. Uh we have a lot of uh, COVID-19 cases. It's a bona fide surge, and it's mostly hitting the big cities at this time, and that's where we're getting most of the news from. And, um, I mean, as with surges in other parts of the world, from uh, Brazil or, um, you know, Italy and Spain last year in early 2020, the surge in cases has placed an enormous burden on the healthcare facilities locally. And um, the situation has obviously been compounded by, you know, uneven levels of uh, quality health care, population densities, as well as it must be admitted some very questionable policy making from the government. So that has served to basically turn this into something of a perfect storm for India. So it, they're in for a tough summer. At one point, uh, good morning, Professor. At one point, India seemed to be doing quite well a few months ago for a very large population, but keeping a lid on things. And then suddenly, over 300,000 cases a day as a sort of a minimum 
Yeah, I'm afraid it's politics again. Um, so last year, the government imposed a lot of uh, very sharp, strict lockdowns. There was a very uh, effective grassroots public health drive uh, to raise awareness about COVID-19 and preventive measures. Unfortunately, it's uh, election time in several states in India. So in March, um, election rallies went ahead and there was little evidence of mask wearing or social distancing. And I felt that several politicians felt it uh, uh, politically convenient to play down the pandemic and uh, declare victory on COVID-19 based on the low cases in India at the time. Unfortunately, the country is not near herd immunity. So uh, we estimate that 25% of India's population has probably contracted COVID-19 in 2020 and add on about 5 to 10% vaccine vaccine recipients. Uh, but you still have 70-odd percent of the country susceptible to COVID-19. So they're nowhere near herd immunity and uh, all of that has combined together. We've also had large, polit- uh, I mean, religious gatherings, again, for the same reason politicians didn't want to scare off voters by saying cancel these events. So they went ahead in March, and I'm afraid here we are. India, of course, is a major manufacturer, the world's largest manufacturer of, of vaccines. Um, it seems con- counterintuitive that the guys producing the vaccines are not doing the vaccinations. Actually, they are. So they have administered about 114 million doses. So that's uh, approximately 10% of India's population. The the problem is the massive size of the population. This is the largest vaccination drive in history. It's also the fastest to get to 140 million in 99 days, I think, uh, was the figure. that's, That's pretty efficient. But the problem is if you relax lockdown measures and, you know, totally forget the pandemic exists during the vaccination drive, you're definitely going to see a surge. So the vaccinations are going ahead. Unfortunately, um, they're not going to be able to prevent a pandemic in real time because it takes time for people to get two doses and then wait for a period of time to reach maximum protection. Two, uh, Two other things here, of course. India produces vaccines for other things. If it's if, if it switches production, then it's not going to be able to supply the world with those other vaccines. That's, that's right. There is uh, probably going to be a little bit of a crunch, and uh, most of the effort now is going to swing to COVID-19. So I'm afraid for other vaccines, we're uh, going to have to rely on existing stocks to a certain degree. But uh, that, so, yeah. that's They'll have to run down those stocks yeah. in other economies. Also, there's a reports of a plea from the Serum Institute in India to the US, specifically to Joe Biden, to allow the export of some of the constituent parts of vaccines. That's correct. I believe that some raw materials are required from the US. I'm not sure about the exact uh, material involved. Some say it's something like blasted silica or something, but uh, it appears that uh, that has been... um, blocked for some time to meet the needs of the American people. So we'll have to see what uh, Joe Biden does about it. It's the ingredient that enables it to uh, be absorbed, is agent or so. I'm not I'm right. going to get the right pronunciation of that. But yes, a key ingredient of the vaccine which America controls the supply of. Mm. What, what, has anyone else produced that? Not that, not that I'm aware of. I understand China's 
uh, has some ongoing dialogue with India on this issue, but I'm not sure whether it's regarding this particular um, raw material. So not not aware of any further details on that. Um, well, yeah, what about the the way that the healthcare system is is responding? Uh, in particular, uh, shortage of oxygen has been reported, and, and very distressing scenes and and uh, terrible scenes really on uh, even on the streets uh, around the country. Um, uh, what's the solution to that? How can that be addressed? It is difficult because it's a very sudden crunch. Although mm. the young population in India, the problem is the uh, a lot of people with hypertension, diabetes. Um, um, uh, these kind of chronic medical conditions really increase the risk of severe COVID. So when you have a massive surge, 300,000 cases a day, you're going to have a commensurate increase in the number of people requiring oxygen, requiring hospitalization. And that is going to place an enormous stress on healthcare facilities. And we have seen that all around the world, but in India, the conditions are very particular because, again, because of the population density compounded by the size of this uh, wave. But I must I must say, I mean, there has got to be soul-searching and somebody should be held accountable because back in February, the Indian government very clearly said that we cannot be complacent. Um, the vaccination drive has started well and good, but most of India is still susceptible, so we have to prepare Unfortunately, those preparations did not take place between, you know, earlier this year and now uh, in terms of uh, securing oxygen plants in uh, every district in India, which the Prime Minister of India has just announced a couple of days back, and we don't know how quickly that's going to swing into action. So I'm afraid complacent governance has uh, really resulted in lost lives. How long will it take, do you think, to achieve herd immunity in India? the present rate of uh, vaccination yeah honestly at this rate it's uh, if, if this current rate persists i mean i expect them to hit it by late summer but but it is it's always difficult to say because we have lockdowns coming into effect in different parts of the country and i expect that would slow down transmission somewhat by late may so um it's it's still early days yet but uh, yeah i expect them to uh, be well on the way to herd immunity by the end of this because of the size of the uh, outbreak. Of course, when I say herd immunity, that's always assuming new variants don't, um, you know, crop up and uh, that can evade right. immunity. But the sooner the sooner we reach a high vaccination level, it reduces the scope for these m- mutant variations, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, we've also heard accounts uh, of uh, people being able to, basically the rich uh, getting the vaccines and getting treatment uh, and, and the poor suffering uh, in India. That must be a, a big concern as well, that, that the, uh, the disparities are actually increased by, uh, by COVID and treatment. Absolutely. I mean, inequalities in um, health care are only going to be exacerbated during pandemics. I think India is a contrast in extremes. You have world-class hospitals, but at the same time, um, the hospitals for the man on the street, like the uh, people below the poverty line, can be very, very financially stretched. So if you have the cash, uh, you can probably, you know, afford um, excellent health care. But again, if, you're, if you don't have the cash, then unfortunately even oxygen becomes comes at a premium. Mm-hmm. 
So it's, uh, it's difficult times. I mean, we've always had uh, a patchy healthcare infrastructure and uh, something like this is only going to expose that very clearly for all to see. Although we focused on India naturally because of these horrifying pictures, actually the vaccination rate in India is not that dissimilar from Hong Kong, is it? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's actually uh, proceeding very, very quickly. But um, a, a few the problem is, again, the size of the population, um, and they also opened it up to the general population. I think it was prioritized for elderly initially, and now it's opened up to the general population relatively recently. So, again, you, you still have only about 10% having received the first dose, which is not uh, dissimilar to Hong Kong. So Hong Kong has lessons to learn from this. It is that basically you can have massive community transmission kicking off from a few super spreader events in an unvaccinated population without herd immunity. So, I mean, I appeal to anyone listening and who's still debating whether or not they should get a vaccine, do so, because uh, this is a decision that affects not only your own body, but also your community. And what's happening in India is, uh, is a very, very clear reflection of this. So, uh, we're in a privileged position to be able to choose what vaccines we get in Hong Kong, and uh, I think we should be, take full advantage of this uh, rare opportunity to basically, you know, keep Hong Kong safe from horrifying scenes like this. Okay, with well, uh, Siddharth Sridhar, clinical assistant press professor from the University of Hong Kong's Department of Microbiology. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning, Mike. Many thanks to you. Wow, two very weighty subjects. Yep, pretty heavy this morning. The weather, many cloudy with a few showers. Temperatures will linger around 24 degrees during the day. Moderate to fresh easterly winds. The outlook a few showers the next couple of days. Showers will be more frequent in the middle of the week and the weather will improve towards the weekend. Last, we're going to Mike, who says... Uh, he was asking earlier about the definition of a climate change denier. Mike says, please, can you answer the damn question and address the issue? It's not if the climate is changing, it's how to stop the warming, or even if it's possible. That is science, not politics. That's from... Mike, 23 degrees, the latest readings. Relative humidity is now at 75%. No matter how fit we are, it is important to get vaccinated to prevent COVID-19. All along, we have received different vaccines to prevent infections. Vaccines will help create antibodies and memory in our immune system. When we come into contact with viruses in future, our immune system will quickly resist them. It is the simplest and most effective method to protect ourselves and others. Let's get vaccinated. 9.30, the news now with Samantha Butler. The United States has become the latest country to offer emergency medical aid to India, where healthcare services have been overwhelmed by a massive surge in cases of COVID-19. The supplies include urgently needed oxygen and ventilators, as well as raw materials to boost India's domestic production of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Researchers in Sweden say total military spending around the world rose to nearly two trillion US dollars last year despite the pandemic. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute identifies the five biggest spenders as the United States, China, India, Russia and Britain. And China native Chloe Zhao was named Best Director at the Oscars in an historic win that makes her the first Asian woman and only the second woman ever to take home the trophy. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. 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 How are you? You're not too bad at all. Good morning. Hello. You never Facebook chat with me, Phil. Good morning. He's got the Tom and Jerry type violence. It's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. Good morning. 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 Good mor
on your radio and live online. This is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you and welcome to Monday here on The Morning Brew. We are going to get the all-important rugby news from Robbie out of the way after 10. Then our New York correspondent, Tracy Kwan, will be with us at 10.40. Quite a few things on her list today. After 11 this morning, meet author... Captain Alan Loind to find out about his new book. It's called All at Sea. Now, this is a memoir telling how he ran away, worked for Swire for decades, met Queen Elizabeth II, and raised a Boeing 747 from the harbour. Back to Berlin in time for tea and medals. Many other things, too. Looking forward to chatting to Alan. After 11.30, it's Marshy movie time. Extra, of course, James Marsh joins us with his almost real-time Oscars rap. And after 12 today, top international pianist and Hong Kong boy Chi An Wong is going to be with us live from City Hall as he puts the finishing touches to what will be undoubtedly a stunning rendition of Bach's Goldberg Variations tonight. Now, he's also going to be performing Ravel's Piano Concerto in G, which is fantastic, later this week with the Hong Kong Philharmonic. So that's your morning brew for Monday. Yeah. 